Hey, you're listening to TBB Talks, the podcast hosted by the British Blacklist, where we bring you conversations with creative black folk from the UK and wider diaspora. We'll be talking to up and comings, headline popping, and the legends across screen, stage, literature, and sound. And we hope to shed some insight into their lives, the careers they chose, how they stay motivated, and more importantly, how they keep sane being black in the arts and entertainment world. How are you doing? Yeah, good, good, hot. But in a good way, in a good way. I'm not complaining. It's great. <laughs> I'm glad you caveated because I was going to say, listen, we can't be friends if you're going to be complaining about the heat. Oh, no, I, don't, I don't complain about the heat. I like it. I'm a queer jam from the British Blacklist. Please, could you introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, I'm Renee Richardson, founder and CEO of Broccoli Content. I make all the business decisions and I started it from my house. And now, well, we're back in our house. <laughs> but that's just due to society, like a pandemic. But um, before we did have an office, we were based in Sony Music when we were allowed outside. It's saying that you had to move from office to working back home, like we all have had to. Yeah. What has it been like for you running your business from home? It's been fine. Literally, we were only in Sony from October to March. So that's literally six months. Before that, I was working from home. So I've just gone back to normal. Like, that was me kind of like, oh, look, we're in an office now. Like, we're a company, big leagues, and then we're back home. But I was used to home already. (laughs) Staying at home and doing work, it's actually been my comfort zone because normally I'm here, there, everywhere. Some people are having, like, an awakening a rebirth since lockdown, but maybe because it was such a smooth transition to what you're used to. But has it, have you learned anything different about yourself during this time? Uh, no, because I used to work from home anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've moved house. We've re, like, renovated where I live now. I've learned new skills that are not podcast related. Like I watched a YouTube video and me and my mum like laid a new turf lawn. So, you know, picked up new like landscape gardening skills. Yeah. <laughs> when the world goes to pot, at least we know that, right? Renee knows how to garden to some sort of degree. And I got really good at lifting heavy things from moving because I had to do it all, like, obviously you couldn't hire people. I was the man with the van, myself. <laughs> so I suppose, like all of us who feel the need to do something different in this creative world, in this landscape, you started off being really frustrated. So what were some of those frustrations and what you were seeing that inspired you to take action? Like I've been kind of in media since I was 14. So I started as a child actor, then worked at talent agencies, then worked in production companies, then worked on production, then worked within um, podcast companies. And now I'm here. And throughout that child actor, I couldn't act. So then I was like, this isn't for me. But when I started in a talent agency, I started in the post room and I worked my way up. So I was like wanting to be an agent. I was the only black person in the talent agency but actually there was a mixed race agent assistant who is now an agent. But you didn't notice back then. I mean, you knew. I grew up in like Dagenham and Dagenham was very white in the 80s and early 90s. So like it's, I was always kind of like, you know, the black one. But what I started to notice because when you're in a talent agency, you see the roster and rosters are always super, super diverse. So you're like, yeah, everyone has an opportunity. Obviously now looking back, but I was young, what do we know? I was 19, you know, you don't really. (laughs) But like everyone who is controlling the roster is white. Mm. I left talent agencies, because it's basically recruitment, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not that passionate about recruitment. So that's why I went into TV production. When I worked at a production company, I started to realize, I was like, oh, 
the opportunities aren't there for you because you can come up with a great idea or you'll come up with a, a character and then you'll pitch it to like the BBC or just Channel 4 because pretty much that's where you pitch things to in England and they'll be like Saran Jones has to be in it Olivia Coleman has to be in it regardless of the character and yeah. I imagine now it'll be Phoebe Waller Bridge. Whatever, Bridge yeah so like there's always the one hot actor who's white a woman and they're in everything and then I was like oh so it's not that you want the ideas it's that you just want that person you don't want to take any and they're not even risks creating new shows creating a variety of voices that's not risk that's what you should be doing but they don't want to do it so at that point I left I was like gonna quit and become a a barista and open a vegan cafe. Oh wow, that's a bit of a... So I, am, I did train as a barista, so I am a barista. <laughs> but um, like a friend from one of the production companies needed help on a show she was working on, so I went and worked in production. But the thing when you get into production is it rolls, it's like spirals, like you do one job, then they're like, oh, can you just do this job? Then yeah. can you do... I ended up doing production for a whole year on different productions. And then I finally was like, okay, I'm that's done. Yeah. And then I was going to do the coffee shop. And then a job description came via ACAST about podcasts. Mm. So that's how I got into podcasting. But it was the same thing there. Podcasting for me, or let's say audio, because it's very heavily influenced by the radio world. Yeah. It was like back in 1980s Dagenham again. Do you feel your background growing up as one of few in Dagenham? helped you be in those spaces or did you ever get a rude awakening when i went to school in dagenham i wasn't the only one i went to it was very like like black and asian because a lot of people from manor park and forest gate went to my school okay um but in the dagenham like it was the whole like bmp stuff and da, 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 yeah. da. but when i was 14 i went to stage school in hammersmith and i ended up being in a school where there was like maybe like 80 kids mm. and i was one of two black kids but everyone was posh and rich mm -hmm. They would deny it because that's what rich people do. Yeah. But um, they were. <laughs> but that kind of prepared me for the media world. Because mm. I never ever changed who I was. I was just myself. Yeah. But it just, and it gave me the tools. And I think this is, if you send your kid to any like drama school, even if it's just weekend classes, it prepares the kid to be able to speak and project their voice in any room. Mm. And that is a skill you need to survive in this country as a black person, but in media as well. So when I got my job at um, the talent agency, most of the people were Oxford and Cambridge graduates mm -hmm. and they'd all done English literature degrees and blah, blah, blah. I didn't even go to uni. So like you have to, you know, just be yourself. And I think the changing schools at 14 just put me in that world early. And so I was able to adapt. Was it a stage school that you went to? Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, recently I had a conversation with some guys that went to Central School of Speech and Drama speaking about their experiences with institutional racism. Did you feel othered at all? Or, and was it in, during that time where you built up your, not defences in a negative way, but that I'm going to be myself regardless, you're going to have to accept me regardless of your assumptions, or was it actually smooth sailing? It wasn't at that stage, because that was only 14 to 16. So I think, like, kids at that stage are just being kids, aren't they? And then I ended up going to the Brit school, which is, like, super diverse anyways. But I do think if I had got into arts ed and um, lane theatre arts, I just didn't, couldn't afford to go there. <laughs> so yeah. I didn't, that's why I ended up at the Brit school. I think had I been able to go there, like going, if you went to Central 
school of speech and drama if you went to Radha, if you went to Landa, because they are rich people. Because mm. yeah. they're like, well, back then, I don't know, it was like three grand, four grand a term. So now God knows what it is. So like you're dealing with ri actual rich people and very privileged people. Whereas I went to theatre school and then I ended up at the Brit school, which is free. So I didn't really have that in that industry. And when I was working in like in the post room and working my way up, I used to just say, you need more colour in the building. You need more yeah. colour in the company. Yeah. And that's how one of the companies that I worked for ended up taking part in the creative access um, you know, getting interns from Creative Access because they okay. really they was like, if you say it enough, people are like, yeah, actually, there shouldn't only be one black person. <laughs> and they ended up, and there's quite a few people that I know who came via, got into the company I used to work for via Creative Access because they did make a, a, like a chance to really get diverse people in. However, there was still only, I think the same one mixed race agent is still the only agent. So no one, oh, there might be some more um, assistant agents who might be associates now, but there's still a lack of, you get the interns and you get the, um, you know, they can be agents assistants, mm. but something does happen where you don't go up. Yeah, you don't progress. And I think with talent agencies, you kind of become an agent, especially the one I worked for, like if your agent dies. So you're literally waiting for like death in order to get promoted, which I mean, isn't ideal. <laughs> I think that there's an element of the reason why the stereotypical white men in the room who are blocking everybody are scared. They're like, "What well, you're gonna? Are you look trying to kill us to get us out of our position?" But okay, so with your feeling confident to speak up and point, even you saying that, "Look, you need some more black pe people up in here or more diversity up in here." Where did that come from? Are you, are you from a family of? Oh, uh, I think my mum just. Yeah. I don't know. Like it's just always been in me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Even when I worked, had my job at Pizza Hut. When I was 16, I didn't mind advocating for myself. People are just people. I don't care if you're the CEO, if you're the chairman of this or that, you're still just a person. The other people may think they're better, but I don't care. I can't even remember when I heard about podcasts, but they made no sense to me. I remember working at BBC and I was working in BBC R&D, maybe 2009, 10, and they were talking about Twitter. And I remember it being like, there's this thing called Twitter. And, then, yeah. and I was like, what the hell? And then alongside that conversation was podcasts. If only I had understood what podcasts were going to be. I'm kicking myself at times because I was actually in the hub of where I could have been <laughs> in that prime position. So what was it about, how did you tweak into the fact that, yeah, this is a thing that I want to get involved? It was just, so I got into podcasts in 2014. I'd obviously heard of them before. And I remember like once, way before that, I had been like, oh, I'm going to start a podcast. And then I just never got around to it because I yeah. couldn't figure out how to host one. Yeah. Like, as in, like how you do the RSS and stuff. So in 2014, when I got into it, I just saw it as a new opportunity because I've worked in media my whole, from 14. So that's pretty much, that's the majority of my life. And so I don't really, I couldn't like go into anything else. Mm. <laughs> and I was like, this one is new. It's a new medium. This one we can maybe shape and make it equal and we'll be, we'll be seen as humans. So that's what I really liked about podcasting. I was like, because you kind of, a lot of the gatekeeping had been, at that point, had been taken away. Yeah. So you could just make your show, get it out, find an audience and build yourself that way. Yeah. So I read, that's what I liked about podcasts. So your first role or first experience of podcasting was with, with an organisation called Acast? Yeah, so I was content, their first UK content manager okay. at Acast. So that was like signing shows um, any like anywhere in the world and getting them onto the platform and 
um, helping them monetize. And then I also, when I was there, um, developed a, my first podcast with ASOS, which was their podcast called My Big Idea. So I helped create that with them. So you've been a literary agent. Well, literary and talent, but I actually never worked in a literary department, to be fair. <laughs> so then how did that, do you pivot that to make sense to, oh, I can actually work in the podcast. Like that's what used to annoy me when I was trying to get out of working in a yeah. talent agency. I was trying to go for a job in a production companies and they were like, oh, you've only got agent, talent agency experience. I'm like, but it's all transferable. Yeah. And people were just so narrow minded. <laughs> And I finally did get out into the production because I had to do a script development course at the NFTS. Okay. Once I had that on my CV, then I got the interviews, then I got the job. It's like, it's all transferable. It's all admin. Admin is transferable. Admin is admin. And then if you're creative, you're creative. You just learn the new medium. It's the people in positions of power who narrow because they don't necessarily have the vision. Yeah. But it's never the person. Took the word out. <laughs> yeah. And also, I think as black people, we are, I mean, other races might do the same, but I'm just saying as black people, because I think we're always put on the position of a back foot and we're never given the true opportunity, we find ways to remix and adapt to any situation we're put in. So yeah. I, I think is we can, because I, I, when I launched the British Blacklist, when I was looking at the profiles for the database, I was like, we do so much. <laughs> like someone's a rapper, a singer, a writer, producer, director, da 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 da, and it's, and actually, if we're given the space to do so, we can actually do it all very well. Mm. So um, yeah, what you're saying about transferable skills is a thing. And I think now the language is more about transferable skills and they're starting to remove the boundaries and making it easier for people to segue from, from industry to industry, position to position. So then yeah. they trusted you with coming out of your ideas. Cause, but you, you made a point to say that before the gatekeepers, before there were blockers. So in that space, when you first got into it, you were given the freedom and you felt like that was the climate across the... Back then, there were less gatekeepers. My first year at ACAST was a lot of explaining what a podcast was. But like two creators or anyone, anyone who wanted to start one, you kind of just could and get it out there. And so that's why if you had a good idea or if you could like really convey the passion, you could go in these meetings and what I was good at was I am super passionate about podcasts so I can convey them in a room. And so I could just get people on board with like the idea of podcasts and ideas. In that sense, podcasting was amazing. Acast was run by a lot of people who didn't work in radio. So like it was Spotify people and people from film and TV. When I started to get deeper into podcasting, I, you know, encountered more radio people and they are living in a different world that I don't want to be in like they are in the dark ages like yeah <laughs> why because I I um <laughs> I'm a radio producer so I'm glad for the structure of learning how to put stuff out there in a formal way that mm. radio gives you but then as a producer of a podcast and sometimes having that you know sometimes we're supposed to record maybe two hours and sometimes it's three hours and stuff like there's also creative freedom. So what do you, what is it you don't like about radio compared to podcasts? And what is it you think is necessary? I learned making podcasting from making podcasts. And I think in this country, there's a big, obviously BBC, they restrict the creativity and the growth of the industry. 
But it's not the BBC that I don't like about radio influencing podcasting. It's the rules that people bring with them. So in radio, there are no, are there any, anyone who owns these broadcasters that are black? The answer is no. So those power structures of radio, like to make the decisions, you have to be white, pretty much. They bring that into podcasting. It's like, that's absolutely wrong. That's my problem with radio influencing podcasting because all those old white rules they're trying to bring in and it's, it's just, you don't need it. So there's a colonization of podcasting. Yeah, you don't need it. I don't need to go through this level. I can just be producer to CEO. You can. Because I, I definitely think I've benefited from even understanding how presenters deliver their stuff and how to navigate conversations. And I suppose you can get that on the job training with a podcast. Yeah, you, you just learn the same way you learn in a radio, you learn making podcasts. People think podcasting is easy and they do skip the lessons. The mm. more podcasts you make, the better you get. So you do have to make them. You can't just be like, I've made one, I'm a star. And every time you make something, you get better. But you don't need to go through formal radio training to do that. You can just make podcasts for your friends. You can make them for yourself. Podcasting removes the colonization of some of an industry that where we don't own anything. We don't own radio unless it's like a smaller community radio station. Yeah. National radio is definitely not owned by us. So, however, you, I read that your idea for one of your first podcasts was rejected. And what was that that, that spurred you on to launching, founding your own? Uh, yeah, that was about race. But like podcasting is, there are gatekeepers now though, sadly. Right. So, okay. Uh, so, yeah. so it's getting worse. But I still think now, if you're going to make a podcast, do it now. Like yeah, literally yeah. now, <laughs> um, yeah. but yeah. So when I was working at a New York-based company, that's when um, I had the idea to work with Rennie Edo Lodge. Um, it was before her book came out, and so I contacted her via her website, and she was really receptive. So she wrote a pitch, and then we the board reads your pitch. They had this thing called the Brass, who made the decisions in New York. Their question was like, does she really not talk to white people about race? And then they said that you have to make it a race show, but it can't be about race in Britain, it has to be about race in America. Then they said like, it has to be a white audience because the majority of the podcast listenership is white. And they ended up calling it Broccoli. And at that point we knew it wasn't like for them. <laughs> what was it about Rennie that you saw? Because were you looking for talent at the time? So being a producer, one of the things, and that's probably from my talent agency days, you have to spot talent. Yeah. Anyone can pay a celebrity to make a podcast. You just give them, everyone's got a price. You just give them the right amount of money and they will do it. What is the skill is finding people before they blow. Mm -hmm. That's what talent agents do. That's what you learn when you work within a talent agency. And that's what producers do. Mm. But sadly, because a lot of the companies are owned by white people and they don't, are risk averse or even creatively averse so they just don't have vision they only have their worlds they are like if the person's not a massive star especially if they're black or brown they're like no no one wants to listen to it and mm. that's just wrong that just means you're bad at your job because mm. you don't have vision and sadly a lot of the people who are in positions of power in audio don't have vision so they try and shut ideas down rennie became a New York Times bestseller. She broke British history of being the first black author to top the overall bestsellers chart. Mm. So who, am I the one who's got the vision or is it the people who were like, oh no, no one wants to listen to her. Yeah. That shows that they were not qualified at their jobs. I mean, and I'm just thinking like, how many more people have had that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. What was it about Rennie that stood out to you? I mean, she just doesn't speak on everything, which I think is key. 
Because <laughs> I've followed her on Twitter for a while and she doesn't get involved in every argument because that's what you want. You want someone who's very concise with their answers, who actually thinks about shaping a story. So I just thought she'd make a great podcast. Because that's what I mean by transferable skills. It's a direct transfer. The only thing you miss is like actually making the audio in a talent agency, but like going to showcases, reading scripts, reading books, going to plays, watching shows, that's all finding talent, right? That's what you should do, be doing as a producer. You should be having your eye out for new talent. That's what producers do. Again, I want to go back to the training and development because I think there is this space for people who are producing podcasts, for people who, are, who want to host a podcast, an element of, yes, learning on the go, but also being prepared because all the things you've been to, like going to showcase, reading scripts, and maybe having that experience of looking at talent from an acting perspective, that's prepared you. In conversation with producers who make stuff for TV like, and film producers, there's not much in the way of training for producers. Do you think that there should be some sort of formulated, and I don't mean to establishment level, but just so, or just some key steps that people need to... I think you have to have an interest in the industry you're in. So when I worked in a talent agency, I, or when I was in TV and film, like, I would read Deadline all the time. I would read Variety. I would be like, know what the goss is on set. Yeah, I, would talk to, <laughs> I was genuinely interested. Yeah. When I was doing script development, when I was doing that course, they say, read scripts of the things you like. So I've got like on my bookshelf, this, one of my favorite films is Seven. <laughs> so I've got the script for Seven. I've got like the scripts of things I like. I read them because I'm interested in what I'm doing. In podcasting, like I am a subscriber to Hot Pod. I am a subscriber to the newsletters. Like I do talk to other producers. I do talk to other people in, the, in that space because I'm interested in it. Mm. So you have, to, you have to have an interest in the industry because I do speak to a lot of podcasters and they are like, never heard of like half the things. You're like, wow, okay. It just shows me you're interested. I'm a big thing about do your due diligence and research. Yeah. Google is free. Google is free. Yeah, and a lot of people don't Google, and I'm like, wow, it's actually just there. Know your craft. <laughs> it's yeah. So, talent agency, done. Script development, done. Production company, done. Then, podcasting. Then they told you, no, your idea is too black, so you went off and did it yourself. Yeah. What did you learn from the process of being with, um, working with someone like Reddy, Reddy and the res response to About Race? So we had a really, really small team because we got an Arts Council grant. So it was basically me, Rennie, and Rez were the core team. Rez was our researcher. And then we had two weeks, Isis Thompson, who's a documentarian, she worked two weeks and did two weeks research for us. But pretty much it was the three of us working on that show. Mm. I remember Rennie said, like, because we asked her at the end, me and Rez, like, did you like it? Like working with us? <laughs> and she was like... I never have to explain myself as much as I did here. Because I remember when we first got together, we always spoke about our upbringing. So Rennie grew up in Tottenham, Rez grew up in Hoxton, I grew up in Dagenham. And I was just saying, yeah, when I was five, you know, I was walking home and like someone wound down their window and shouted, go home, nigger. Or no, I think they said, like, called me Packy, like, go home. And I was like, but I am going, I didn't understand because I was going home. Mm. So it was weird. And I was five. Mm. And then, like, the neighbours, I remember their names, like, they lived next door but one, and they would just call us nigger through the fence when we were playing, me and my cousins, because my cousins, like, live next door and five doors down, mm -hmm. so we'd play in the garden. 
And yeah, so it's just like, and I was just saying all these things and they were like, wow, because in Tottenham there were black people and mm. in Oxford there were black people. It's like multicultural. So like they didn't have that experience. And so that's why the white season episodes of About Race, we yeah. wanted to focus them around Dagenham and the rise of the BNP. Because I was explaining like what it was like growing up there as a black person. And that's how those episodes came about. And the more we researched, the more you'd be like, oh my God, we didn't even know White Season existed. And mm. we're like, bloody hell, the BBC did this. <laughs> um, but the reception to it, it was, yeah, so it was really great working with someone so talented and just an excellent storyteller. And yeah, yeah just really, really on point with like facts and who she can interview. And yeah, it's just shaping narrative. And then the response to it was, yeah, great. It was kind of like, it went to number two in the, in the Apple chart back then, two and a half years ago in 2018. And it was great that Apple were the only um, app that featured us and gave us support. And it was awesome because they were the biggest one. But it was annoying. You know, we didn't get the editorial features that other podcasts get, but we still did really well. So we were like, wow, imagine if we had the support. Because <laughs> it went to number one like a couple of weeks ago again. And then you had the journalists and all the people who could have platformed us before were like, oh, you should listen to About Race with Renia Deloge. It's a great resource. Oh, you should do this. Oh, you should do that. It's like, you could have done that before, but you chose not to because you were blissfully ignorant. Are we meant to be grateful now? I'm not. I don't speak for any, but I'm not. Because I'm like, you people were the ones holding us back. You were the ones who made us have to record it in my house. Yeah. Had to make us apply for an Arts Council grant. If we didn't do any of that, would the show exist? Because you would shut us down. Like literally you, the people with the power. How many other people got shut down? How many people didn't, when they applied for the Arts Council grant, got rejected? How many people just because the white media industry shut everyone down? So it's kind of frustrating. <laughs> it is a frustrating space to be, especially when you're trying to take ownership, or not even trying to take, it's claiming ownership of space that you should be able to, it shouldn't even be a thing we have to claim, it should just be, yeah. I've got this idea. I want it to work. Obviously, there's goals and hoops and stuff that we all go through as humans, but at the end of the day, you shouldn't be held up because of your gender or your race. So, on the back of About Race, it was a limited podcast, yeah, right? Yeah, nine, nine seasons, nine episodes, sorry. Nine episodes, so you're not going to, there's nothing else to say or? It's because that was just a season. Okay. That was just that story. Like, it ended after, like, Tony Blair years and kind of to up until 2018 wasn't it and then it was like what can I do so it kind of ended with the first original success of Rennie's book people were like yeah I've read your book oh my god you know white people crying because they're like oh my god but actually now when you look at between then and now you're like oh so you actually didn't listen to the podcast or read the book no. I mean you read the book but did you actually understand what was being said and it's very clear that the answer is no <laughs> and that's another frustration because I understand you're like well, should we be grateful for the accolades now because yeah. you weren't appreciative then and it looks like you're i'm not sorry is that is that wasn't it rent what's his name ronnie yeah ronnie. i don't know i think i think someone's there but it's not for me yeah he's looking out the window somewhere there ronnie. must be the postman or something <laughs> ronnie sounds like he's 10 feet tall oh ronnie is tiny ronnie sounds a lot bigger. oh god no, 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 seriously, Ronnie's got big dog energy, seriously. He, it's always um, a disappointment when he's made all that noise and then he, like, jumps up to the screen and they're like, him? That noise came from him. <laughs> like, he's projecting very well. I'm, I'm singing Big Dane, 
I'm seeing Al's Come here, come here, look. So guys, because I literally want to leave. Oh my God, Ronnie, you are trying it. Ronnie, <laughs> I'll fight you, Ronnie. I'm not scared. He's <laughs> tiny. For the sake of people listening, because I think I might leave this in as I meditate. Ronnie's like the size of my finger. No, he's not. He's like a, <laughs> the small dog, though. That, that yeah. voice that you heard is not. <laughs> so I was going to say that not to take away from Rennie's much-deserved awards and accolades, it does come with that tinge of, are you really listening? If, if nothing's changed, because post-lockdown, my naivete and kumbaya wishful thinking, I thought that this lockdown would spring forth humans with a new found sense of understanding of each other. And When the podcast first came out, like, obviously black people listened. Yeah, <laughs> white people listen and they were like oh my god i just heard the podcast like they'd share it da, 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 da. but it's very obvious to this new civil uprising that is happening now that they didn't listen yeah. like the white ones because if you look at the list if you go on amazon or like any best-selling list and it's got you know rennie's book bernardine evaristo's yeah. book you've got um that white fragility book yeah. um how not to be a racist all these books and you're like but they were on they're on my bookshelf anyway I was interested in white fragility. I'm not white. And white people just don't care. <laughs> They're buying them now. Because of the pandemic, they didn't have the escape to look away from what was happening because that's, I guess, what had always happened. Like, you go to the bar, you go on holiday, you go out, you go to the cinema. So you, there's a distraction, but there wasn't during what has happened with George Floyd and just, you know, Elijah McClain, Brianna Taylor. Like, there's no distraction from it. You can see it. The Amy Cooper video, they can see themselves in her and I think there's been no distraction but it's like if you had read Rennie's book back in 2017 or 2018 or listened to the podcast you didn't hear a single word mm. because you would then carry on doing your stupidness and so the conversations that I've been having these last few weeks is that I have never that I know of worked for a far-right company or an alt-right company or a Brexit means Brexit person, or a Trump supporter. Mm. Yet, I had loads of racist stories. So we've got to look at who actually is doing the racism. Yes, of course, it is sometimes the Trump supporters, but actually it's the well-meaning white liberal. They're doing it, and they blame the Trump supporter, but like, when you do your reading, <laughs> maybe you should have a discussion with your friends about, and look at yourself in the mirror and have a discussion with yourself and be like, hey, did I do that? Because those conversations aren't happening. Yeah, because the indignance that they suffer, because I, I'm a liberal, I voted for Obama, as they say. I'm all for, you know, women's rights and black people's rights and all that type of stuff. And then we're, especially in the UK, as we know, it's different here. Systemic racism is so different. It's so subtle and they smile in your face and you know that behind doors, they're just, just signing away policies and rights and all that type of stuff. And just realizing that actually, yes, we go to the pub with Ade, but we're definitely not going to let Ade come in our family and all that type of stuff. But you would never know because everything's so nice and palatable. They're looking at themselves, they're feeling really angry and agitated and realising that actually they're a little bit racist. But then will they make a change, which is the interesting thing. So I was going to ask about the title because I remember you said that um, someone called your content Broccoli. Oh uh, yeah, that was my friend AC who lives in DC. Okay. And I was telling him the Broccoli story and he was like, you should name your company that. Yeah. And I was like, I will. Because it's that super, super petty, and I am the petty queen. And it means those people, when they eat broccoli, because it's a very popular vegetable. Very. You will think of me every time, and your failures. 
And it also does what it says on the tin as well. Like that's what we make. We make broccoli content. Content that is good for you. I was like, I love this and I love broccoli. So like, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> content. So then, you know, broccoli content, what, what are you looking for? There are not a lot of running Edo Lodges, but obviously those are talented people. So we don't take pitches for one. Why? Because we've got so many ideas internally that at the moment don't need because we're only a small team of five like i imagine when we get massive and then you run out of ideas or there's loads of more people to mm. make the shows then you can take external ideas but um pitches i mean but at the moment we've got so many internally that we don't need external ideas but what i look for is so each, there's five of us so we each have five different tastes and so i look for people who just interest me who's not arguing all the time mm. i love arguing but not all the time who really are doing the evidence stuff. Have they thought about it? Because I like to be challenged. Mm. So they're, they're who I want to work with. And yeah, so I reach out to the odd person. I like to learn. So I always want to work with people who will help me like learn. Yeah, that's fair. You do make stuff to go onto other platforms because you've got uh, the millennial, was it Money 101? That's on BBC Sounds. How does that work? So when you pitch to BBC Sounds, they just license the idea from you. So you still own it. They just license it and fund it. So they make it a BBC Sound show, but it's still available like on Apple or Spotify and everywhere else. But it literally works just like um, any other TV film production company. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The reason why I'm just like, because I know there are lots of people like I want to produce, but not really understanding like how to, because people are thinking, let's pitch to a BBC and then it's a BBC thing rather than actually how do we control our content? If you're starting out, make it yourself. The Arts Council publicly said they are they fund podcasts again, like a couple of weeks ago. So get your Arts Council funding, but have a big idea. It has to be a big idea. So About Race was a big idea. And I used that show to generate work because I was like, I'm freelance now, like I'm you know on it, out there on my own. So I need a big idea to help make this happen so that's what i did with about race first and that's probably why we got the funding for it but you can get arts council funding like if you're in the uk that exists so use it it's free money you don't have to give it back (laughs) people don't always understand that and it is about really knowing the industry that you're working i only came across the arts council it was at that same time and like someone had tweeted about funding getting funding for like a a theater show or something and i was like oh let me look into this arts council thing i didn't know anyone who's ever like applied or anything like that before Mm. and i looked at it and they've got a whole list of funding i was like oh our project would fit here so i just applied so who do you listen to or what's your form of are you always listening to podcasts or do you like how else do you entertain your brain uh, I watch The Office all the time. Like it's really bad. Like the US one. I love. I, I love. Uh, I watch it. Well, I watch it every day. So obviously, I love it. And I sometimes reluctantly start new shows. So I'm like, oh, I'm not ready to invest yet. So I just, I oh, will just put on Office again. Um, but podcast-wise, I always listen to The Read every week because okay. I have to. There's this show called Reset. It's a tech show related to your life now. It's sometimes scary. You're like, oh my god, like we should just live off the grid. But I listen to that. For my news, I always listen to Today Explained because I think they're really interesting and how they put shows together. And then I love a, um, just a, a series, you know, like if there's a new series, like I really liked the We Crashed, which was about WeWork. Yeah. I love a big like businesses go wrong yeah. story because I think you can learn a lot from 
people's failures. Yeah, so that's why I watched like the Theranos documentary on YouTube like 10 times because I wanted to learn from Elizabeth Holmes. Not many people would want to learn from her, but I'm like, you can learn a lot from her. When a failure is documented, they really, really go into detail. Whereas like success stories are always just a bit fluffy. Yeah, but like I did this and I did this and it was fine. Yeah, it's like, and then I was here. Yeah. It's, but whereas it's a failure because they want to humiliate the person who failed, they really go into detail. And that's actually where you can learn a lot. So yeah, I really, yeah, I've watched the documentary 10 times, read the book, listened to the podcast. What is it about the read that actually stands out to you? And is there anyone in the UK that, not like the read, but is there, are there any UK podcasts hosted by black folks that you find like, you know, this is, this, this is legs or really enjoy it? Um, the read for me sticks out. It was the first time I listened to anything. Even though I'm not American, I felt myself reflected. Yes. And so the read was the first time that had happened. Because, you know, I lived in England. We had, what, Desmonds and, you know, the black people who mugged people on the bill. You know, there wasn't much. <laughs> and the news, you know, it's always skewed. Yeah. It was the first, yeah, it's the first time that I was like, oh my God, this is out here. And that's what made me fall in love with podcasting. So I was like, we can get our voices out and you can find an audience. Mm. So that's why I love, I always stick to the read. I listen every week because and also they keep me relevant because anyone who has ever worked with me knows that I somehow am in some weird Twitter place where I lose what is happening. <laughs> I see the memes and stuff after, but I don't know the context and everyone else does. When I worked with the receipts, when we were making receipts on one extra, I would come every week to record and I'd have like my notes of like what had happened that day. So like lately, what do the two Virgils mean? You know? <laughs> I, got, I know I, now. I was so happy I caught that on Twitter because if I didn't catch it on Twitter, I'd have been like, I don't understand. But like things like that, I would come in to the recorder, I'd be like, uh, what does this mean when that happens? Or what does that, what are people talking about? And they would just keep me relevant. I, sorry, I missed that you um, worked on receipts. Are you still working on receipts? Or that was that? No, so that was the receipts on one extra. Yeah. I did that. Yeah. So I think we did two seasons. That was really fun. Yeah. But they kept me relevant <laughs> because I don't know how my Twitter breaks but clearly I'm not in the right time zone <laughs> it happens it happens you're doing so much so then what's next I mean where are you at now with broccoli content what's happening next and yeah what's in the horizon? So we currently have a series called Anthem's Pride Out um, which is every day in June we've got Anthem's Home coming back which was the series that we started we opened up submissions because of we were trying to create opportunities for people during lockdown because a lot of freelance gigs went and then the next one we've got coming in September is Anthems Black, which we had slated from January anyway, because obviously Broccoli is a Black-owned company. Yeah. Being Black is very important to me. And I wanted to do a series where you highlight Black voices, but not necessarily about Black things. Okay. So the brief for Anthems has been the same for every series. So Anthems Women, which, which was in March, so Anthems Home, Anthems Pride, and Anthems Black. The brief is write a manifesto story, poetry, or speech about your experience as who you are. It's not write one about being a woman, write one about being gay, write one about being black. So we don't adapt the brief at all. The brief is the same. But what we're doing is trying to platform voices that you wouldn't necessarily hear from all the time. Mm -hmm. So like some, you'll get some familiar voices, obviously, but like we want to celebrate the voices that, um, yeah, don't necessarily normally get 
given a main stage. That's the whole point of anthems. And so, yeah, we're looking forward to Anthems Black. Well, especially the climate we're in now. It shows that we are one of the only production um, companies who make content like this authentically. We're not jumping on a bandwagon. We're doing it the whole time. And I do hope that it changes the climate. Like, I hope more people do think we need to make more socially aware content because everything you put out, it, you do shape media. Like, media shapes our society. So if you platform people, if you platform hate, if you platform stupid, ignorant views, like, you are directly impacting our lives. Yep. And I think people need to be more aware of what they're doing. That's how Broccoli's run, right? We think about what we put out. Yeah, I 100% agree. And um, finally, I wanted to end on, this is my little personality, getting to know the person in the day, or the week, how your week's been. What's made you sad, mad, and glad this past week? Oh, sad. Oh, reading about Elijah McLean. Yeah, that awful. Like, uh, horrendous. Mm. Like, absolutely awful. That made me mad as well, because, mm. um, like we were talking, because of the equality pact that I started the other week, I'm talking to white people who are in positions of power, mm. who make excuses, and I'm like, you literally are the person who can make the change today and you're choosing not to so the fact that how many more elijah's have to die for being cold basically because he was wearing a ski mask it's absolutely ridiculous and um, what's made me glad uh the sun yeah. i mean you can't complain oh, sun no. in the ice cream <laughs> very good so you just said the equality pact so i, I missed uh, yeah. So in response to the, all the civil uprising that's been happening, I wanted to do something to change the audio industry. So I set out a challenge. I knew I wanted it to be a challenge. And then with the Broccoli team, we came up with the Equality in Audio Pack, which we put out, Just I sent a tweet, they tweeted it. We added some people and we've had uh, 250 companies sign up now, oh, including wow. BBC, Bauer, Wondery, Gimlet, Spotify, yeah, quite a big companies sign up to these five actions. It's pay interns, hire LGBTQIA people, black people, people of colour and other minorities in roles not only related to their identity. If you release pay gap data, release the race pay gap data also. No longer to participate in panels that are not representative of the cities, towns or industries they take place in. And be transparent about who works for you. So... Be transparent about who is full-time, who is on a short-term contract, what their role is, what their position is. And when, when people sign up, what, how are they held accountable? So the first week, we'll start going through everyone's websites to check that they've done 0.5. So it's very manual. <laughs> um, and we are also getting, a lot of people volunteer to be part of like the task force <laughs> um, where we hold people accountable. We've also set up a website where you can report companies that have signed anonymously that they've broken the pact so then we'd look into that and basically we want to get it to the point where it's just normal mm. like you don't need the equality pact you're just doing these things because the thing is the five actions are easy and they're doable and you should be doing them anyway because we are broccoli was mm. so like you should be doing them anyway so i've had enough of the excuses we, the industry is changing whether everyone likes it or not it's gonna change the main thing for me is how are we holding, once we put these things out there, how are they being held accountable? Because they, they can sign things and say, yeah. I personally have a lot of energy for holding the people accountable. The industry is not gonna stay how it is anymore because it's wrong. The wrong people are in power. It is not equal. And I'm sick of being viewed as a brown sexist blob. And on that note. <laughs> 
I'd like to thank you for giving me up your, over an hour. Thank you for giving up your time. Um, it's been wonderful just to get some insight into you. I, to be honest, I didn't know who you were, which is mad. And yeah, testament to what we also need to know who we're, who our peers are because it's strength in numbers. So I'm, I'm really glad to have spoken to you. Awesome. Thank you. Bye.